Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the music of Final Fantasy VI, composed by Nobuo Uematsu, with a particular focus on what I would argue is the greatest collection of character themes ever assembled. I heard on one of those Resonant Arc videos that after composing this soundtrack, Uematsu considered retiring. He thought, you know, that's it. That's as good as I'm ever going to do. And particularly, he talked about not wanting to write standout character themes for each one of the individuals anymore. And I can understand why. Now, he, he wrote plenty of phenomenal character themes after this game. Let's not get it twisted. However, I can understand why he would think... I'm never going to top that. And not only would, in my opinion, he never top this conceptually, I don't know that anyone's ever put a collection of standout character themes, recognizable themes that are definitely for each individual person in the story and had them work as well as it does, both as individual pieces and really as a collective which in the end his master stroke of brilliance is to bring them all together to spoil how we're going to end the podcast this is i think i said before in one of the episodes if if peter and the wolf is an introductory level to understanding characterization through music and star wars is a college graduate course this is a doctorate this is um, this is absolutely stunning what he was able to accomplish with I'm, I know we'll see how I'm loosely calling some of these character themes certainly with the 14 main character themes plus the one for the main villain but some other stuff that I think works to sell the all the motifs overall I also want to draw particular attention to the yin-yang nature of these themes. There are several characters who have their themes reinterpreted to show another side of that character and of their story, and some of those reinterpretations are just as impactful and memorable as the original pieces of music, and a lot of them are multi-purpose. They're used for that character, but they're also used to stand in for what that character symbolizes. We talked in the plot episodes about how Locke's theme is the adventure theme that also plays when you're jumping off the top of Figaro Castle. There's a lot of examples of that. There are a ton of tie-ins and payoffs to these character themes that it's almost difficult to keep track of them all. I won't be able to mention every single time. It's almost like Easter eggs for music. So let us begin where we have to, with where we've come in with the piece of music you've heard the most often as we've gone throughout our conversation of this game, of arguably the greatest simple melody Uematsu has ever composed, and that is, of course, Terra's theme.
I would need to know much more music theory and quite frankly be a better musician to be able to explain why this is so good. There are a lot of nice things going on in terms of the rest of the music, but this is, simply put, a melody of a handful of notes that some musicians search their entire lives for, and, ex and successful ones will never find it. Something this good. Something this immediately indelible. If anyone out there has ever played Final Fantasy music for people who aren't necessarily into Final Fantasy music, a lot of it can sort of bleed together, and I understand that. But even though this fits right into normal symphonic, there's nothing about the instrumentation that stands out from other stuff Uematsu has done, but people will recognize this one as being separate from the others. It's distinct, it's memorable, it stands out, and it's because it is a melody that is undeniable. For me, part of why I love this piece is I think the nostalgia of it. Uh, when we started playing Final Fantasy VI, I was 14 years old, 13, 14. And so every time I hear this piece, I get nostalgic for the game, for the story, and uh, specifically for this character and what she goes through. You know, we, we all find these stories at different points in our lives, and, and some of them will mean more to us than others. I think at least as much because of when we find them. So finding this story and, and thereby this theme and this character uh, at that time in my life has made it resonate strongly for me. And I don't want to undercut that point at all because I think it's an important one. And oftentimes people put a negative attachment to nostalgia and we never mean a negative attachment to nostalgia. But I also think that even though, like I said, I'm not going to be able to explain what it is, there's something about this piece that does make it stand out. Whether you heard it first as a kid or you heard it first at 30 years old, and one of the reasons I think that the, the sort of proof is in the pudding about that, Uematsu knew he had something special because he reinterpreted this thing multiple times inside of this game where you can, I think, fairly easily reach the conclusion that it is the main theme of Final Fantasy VI. And he found he could play with this melody, put it on the piano, put it on you know, more intense instruments, ramp up the tension, pull back even the B section it has where it goes into more of a march and it's more uplifting versus the the A sections that have that main melody I've been talking about that are contemplative it's just such a diverse piece of music it's been redone and remixed and remade as much as any single piece of music he's ever made uh, including like I said by himself if you go to a Final Fantasy concert, it is expected you will hear this piece. Of everything he's done, like we said, he's got tens and ten, twenty, thirty hours of quality music to pull from. You have to play Terra's theme. Another thing that strikes me about this piece is you just said it's uh, done and redone so many times throughout the game. We get leitmotifs throughout for various reasons. And so it can be seen as perhaps the theme for the game, considering her name is Terra. And I realize that the, the English name is different than the Japanese name, but considering her name is Terra, and we have talked uh, multiple times about how the world 
of Final Fantasy VI is its own character, gets its own character arc. I like the idea that the uh, that Terra's theme, you know, Terra also meaning Earth, uh, being a, a theme for the world and for the game seems uh, particularly appropriate. Yeah, in fact, I think if you were, if I was being not pedantic because the original theme is just called Terra's theme, but the awakening reinterpretation, which is just on the piano, it's got this little warble at the beginning. The first time you hear it is when she's waking up out of the coma and she sort of falls over. But that warble that puts you off, I think that represents more of her struggle, her internal struggle, not knowing who she is or much about the world. The lighter version of the melody is now on the piano versus the strings or the flute first version that we've heard of it and, and i love the piano collection version of it again one of the more famous and popular versions of the piece then there are two other reinterpretation or light motifs of this that actually occur inside of other pieces of music but i included them here because they do eventually contain this melody. Uh, Sometimes it comes out of nowhere. First in the song, Protect the Espers. So we talked about in the last episode, hurry up music. And for the first 30 or so seconds of this, this is just really good hurry up also battle. The first time you hear it's when you're protecting the Esper. That's where the name comes from. And it's that battle where you're protecting Tritoch. Really just kind of a good piece of ramp up your energy music. And right around that 30 second mark, it hits you with that Terra theme reinterpretation, which again ties it to all of the events of the world hear that melody in a whole new way and it's just it's so satisfying yeah damn that's good yeah that that is a really cool move in that piece and uh to tie to the title of the piece if we're protecting the espers Terra is one of the espers right and this is just before we learn that so in that way it's like a musical foreshadowing of the story that we're uncovering here so smart And then as we were just discussing, shortly thereafter, uh, Terra metamorphs. Is that that the verb of to have a metamorphosis? Uh, Sure. Uh, Into metamorphosis. Metamorphizes. Metamorphosizes. Right. Uh, Into Uh. her esper form. And we get a, a piece of music called metamorphosis that also plays at other times throughout the story. This being the most prominent. And it's this crazy, chaotic symphony of destruction that is the most intense interpretation. This is, if we've kind of heard contemplative Terra, and then we've heard sad Terra, and then we've heard adventurous protect the espers battle Terra, this is losing complete control Terra. There's something to be said here for losing control. Uh, like we've talked about the espers in this world, there's something about this world that makes them lose control. So we will hear this music again when the espers come through the sealed gate, right? And they have they have lost control. Right. I also think as 
you're fighting to not let Kefka destroy the tower or the, the statues. Okay. At some point during that yeah. sequence of events, this also plays. Yeah. So it, it definitely has that feel of it, it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. And it's probably not going to be a good thing. And so to hear Tara's theme in there again uh, is particularly interesting because she is somebody... One of my favorite things is when characters can understand themselves and, and come to accept themselves. Uh, and I think I talked about this already, but spoiler for the latest Avengers movie, Dr. Bruce Banner being able to be in his Hulk form but have his Bruce Banner awareness is so super cool. And so Tara being able right. to understand herself uh, and control her powers is great. But at the same time, sometimes you do just lose control. And so th this, this piece is, uh, is a really cool way of exemplifying that. All right, let, let's cool down a little bit after all of those amazing interpretations of that melody and everywhere he was able to take that. And before we get into the next main character... I'm going to categorize them all, not that Tara isn't, but as the returners. And I think this counts, I don't know, maybe you'll disagree with me, but as a, a piece of character music, um, maybe for the the red shirts of uh, uh -huh. <laughs> the returners, the, the less prominent members, the foot soldiers in this battle against Kefka, which, as you mentioned in our last piece, you know, when we got to the end there, that they're a part of this too. So when you said we were going to split this into two episodes and one of the episodes would be character themes, I did not think of this piece. I'm not sure I think of it as a character theme, but it's the theme of a group of characters, which is, you know, split in hairs. I dig this piece. I think I've said before that it sort of puts me in mind of the, uh, you know, the sort of Axis allies spy ring thing going on. Like, you know, this is the sort of ragtag group of you know, th this is not the group that's at the uh, the main HQ, right? This is the group that's got to make do with what it can, and it's hiding in caves and it's working with ham radios. Right, and it just sounds like it. You know, someone's going to walk in and say, "All right, everyone, listen up," <laughs> and then lay out a plan, which is exactly what happens, right? And then, as uh, you know, from a musical standpoint, again, this gets close to being potential filler. It's, it shares, a, I think, a lineage with Chrono Trigger's trial music. Sure. It's got that pacing bump, 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 uh, which, you know, if someone's about to deliver a speech on how this military incursion is going to go, they might be pacing back and forth, much like a lawyer does. So I, I think it works in that way. But it could very easily just stick in that structure. But the way it loops, the strings do something the second time around through, which you'll hear that's just... It just brings it into another area that allows it to exist in a space of a bit more tension before it loops again. And it's a, a way of making a piece of music that might otherwise fade into the background uh, unique and one that you don't skip as you're listening through. All right. And the first returner that we meet, as I mentioned him a moment ago, he has the adventure theme. Locke Cole. I've always found just randomly peculiar about this piece is that that first bit of melody uh, shares a similar note structure to O Come All Ye Faithful, 
Interesting. Just one huh. of those things that you notice. Other than that, this is just a really, really fun piece of adventure trumpet music that I, I think does everything that it's meant to do. It's not exceptionally complicated. It is melody-driven like his best stuff almost always is. I don't know how much it would stand out to people who don't have an attachment to the character, but again, it so perfectly fits the character. I think it does a lot of his characterization of telling us about his adventurous spirit and the, the movement in this piece and the way it is used when you're doing something crazy like jumping off the top of a, of a castle. Yeah. yeah, I dig this piece. It puts me in mind of, uh, as we've said before, the theme from Final Fantasy V, Chrono's theme, perhaps the theme of Dr. Henry Jones Jr., that having that hero theme, that driving forward theme, that we're going to do something really cool here in a moment theme is is important, and I think this one does it well. It's B section, so our, our A section is the part that, as I mentioned, kind of sounds like a Kamali faithful. The B section is this great falling down line that's very, you know, moving forward and bombastic, and it's ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. Exciting and moving forward. What's amazing to me is that Uematsu took that collection of notes and for his reinterpretation, again, we talked about the yin-yang, this theme is just kind of flipped on its head. The A and B sections change spots and the parts that used to be more adventurous and forward-moving become very slow and contemplative and somber in Forever Rachel. about to talk about a, a theme that is for two characters and so, so I, I have to ask do you think that this is Locke's theme or is this Rachel's theme at this point or can the two be yeah I've always thought of this as Locke's true theme that his bombastic nature is more of a put on not that he's not really that guy but we know that the most center core of Locke is a hopeless romantic. And, you know, this sadness is what he carries with him everywhere. But, as we were doing this for the podcast, both the story and now going through the soundtrack, my interpretation of it now is that this is Rachel's theme. Not necessarily just Locke's, but that her connection to him 
is what brings out his his truest self. So maybe we're we're splitting hairs there. Uh, maybe it's both of their themes, like you said. The next one we're going to talk about, but for me, it's kind of been that Edgar and Sabin, who also get the a sadder version of their theme, or Setzer, who gets a sadder version of his theme. That those were like the other side of the coin. <laughs> um, <laughs> the you know this other part of them. It's their dark past. This other thing that is part of them, but not maybe all of them. That they're really more their original theme. Where for Locke, I always felt like his true self is closer to the Forever Rachel music. Which is, by the way, uh, another one that's interpreted a lot and, and redone and remastered and rearranged because it's so beautiful. As we just mentioned, Edgar and Sabin share a theme. It is a fanfare. It is castle music it also uh, we mentioned you know for Locke he's got the adventure music for Edgar and Sabin their theme is also the music for Figaro Castle so it's also for a place they, they do share one which I think is a really interesting choice you could very easily have decided that Sabin would get a less regal fanfare castle theme he could have but, had Mount Colts as his theme but sure sure I, I think this is a really great piece that does tie the two of them together. Uh, another memorable one. Uh, how much does it stand out? Hard to tell. But again, I think when it goes into the reinterpretation, the coin of fate that tells the story of the time they had to flip the coin to decide who would get the kingdom in the aftermath of their father's death, probably poisoning by the empire. Um, maybe even that you could argue is more Sabin's theme because he interpreted or rather he experienced those emotions a bit more raw than Edgar did he allowed himself to cry where Edgar did not so maybe that's another way to, to take this There's also a, a YouTube channel I think I've mentioned before called 8-Bit Music Theory where he breaks down how to create variations on a theme in a masterful way. And he uses Edgar and Sabin's theme. First, he uses Tara's theme because, of right. course, he does. But I, I really like the way he talks about Edgar and Sabin's theme and how Coin of Fate uses it and then extrapolates on it to get to a climactic note uh, in, in kind of in the second final section of the piece that you will hear and it's really well done go go check that out for actual music theory interpretation of it uh, beyond that all we can say is that this is again really pretty Setzer, who gets a, a theme that I think represents the future. It is, oddly enough, a, a major factor in 
the final piece of music, the climax, the conclusion of the story. Setzer's theme really stands out, which has always been interesting to me. Uh, but it's just a super fun one with a lot of movement in it, those strings in the underbelly, the trumpet moving forward. It's got similar energy to Locke's theme, but I do think they're distinct enough from each other. Where one is adventure you know, in the treasure hunting and, and lock picking sort of way, and the other is symbolizes the technology and the future momentum of the world. I think part of that is also the freedom of the sky is yours, right? Like we're he's he's that guy who has no no attachments. All his attachments are gone, and he he literally lives above everybody else, and he he's the free wheeling gambling man, and he does what he wants, and he. He partakes of what he wants, and uh, yeah, I, I, I dig it as a theme because it, on, on the one hand, he's got a bit of that moroseness to him also, right? We find him in a bar in the world of ruin, and he sort of looks like he's been partaking quite a bit of whatever he wants. But at the same time, he is, heck, let's do it. This is a great plan. I love it. And he sort of rolls with it. My life's a chip in your pile. Damn right it is. That's why I think ultimately his his theme is his true theme. And now that we've talked about Forever Rachel, I think you could argue that Epitaph is Daryl's theme. Interesting, Not yeah. Setzer's sad theme, but it is Daryl's theme. Again, it's so amazing how we can take almost the exact same set of notes, but put them on a different instrument, slow it down, have different instrumentation behind it that adds a layer of sadness or whatever, and then do a couple of things to the melody to just make it go from this very uplifting thing to something that brings tears to your eyes. Yeah. Now, the next set of characters only get their one theme. Well, until the end, and we'll get to that. But it's not like Uematsu-san was skimping here. Let's start with, again, a personal favorite. I think I've, that's the first time I've said the word favorite, maybe. <laughs> this this, this particular episode. <laughs> yeah. Shadow's theme is one we've discussed before because it stands out so much. It's unusual compared to everything else Uematsu has done. Sounds like Western cowboy music. Maybe Western outlaw music, considering he's a train robber. Right. And again, it's very simple. 
it's just got this. It also has the AABA form that I was talking about before. It doesn't go really anywhere. It's just when your original melody is that good and you've got those little walk down triplets, that for, it's the first jump up, bum bum, that's very satisfying. And then your three walk down notes, do 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 do. And that's, that's the success of it, those triplets, that jump, and that it comes on the whistle, so it really does invoke the sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly spaghetti western situation. But then when he, when he puts it on strings later on, it just blows the doors off the place. Cyan's theme is, again, a bit different, and I think a personal favorite of both of ours. One of the things that I really like that it does, we've talked about how Cyan kind of sits at the center of Eastern and Western ideas of knights and samurai, and I feel like this piece of music sells that to the thousandth degree. It begins us with Japanese-sounding flutes and having sort of an Eastern melodic structure, and then it gets into its B section, and it's these sweeping orchestral European strings. It's just, yep, there, there it is. You don't have to overthink it sometimes. In fact, one of my favorite uh, remakes, remixes of this piece is from uh, little KFSS Studios, a tribute to Nobuo Uematsu CDs. Uh, that is just phenomenal. It, it packs such emotion because of what happens to Cyan and what he has to deal with and, and how he pushes through. But it's also just, I mean, Sometimes when we're doing these episodes, we'll stop and, and we'll play the piece a bit so we can remind ourselves what it is. But this one, I don't have to do that. I just have that moment of the castle is under siege. We might have to give in. And then uh, Cyan's line of something like, uh, a moment, your majesty. And, and I, can, I can immediately hear the music. It's extraordinarily memorable. Yeah, it literally introduces the character and I like you were kind of alluding to there it doesn't need a reinterpretation a sadder version this is actually one of the longer pieces at two minutes and 24 seconds where the other ones a lot of them come in under two minutes before they repeat uh, a couple of times even but this has all of the drama all of the melodrama and sadness but also hope like th this piece of music tells Cyan's whole story when you listen to it, it's amazing what he accomplished, and the the strings that it and during the climax just take your breath away. All right, the next piece of music gives me an opportunity to talk about decision making. A lot of music can unfortunately be broken down into math and science. <laughs> there's only so many notes. There's only so many ways to put those notes together, and the more creative you try to get with that math, the more likely it is your piece of music is going to sound like a mess. Remember that when we get back to talking about One Winged Angel, by mm. the way. 
But a lot of times music making is just a series of decisions. Why this note and not that one? Why this chord and not that one? And the most important decision any musician makes is the very first one. What is this piece of music about? What is its central feel? And somebody presented Nobuo Uematsu with a sketch of Gao and probably a couple of sentences about his story. And Uematsu could very easily have made the Velt right. be Gao's theme or something like it. But for a character who gets very few lines of dialogue, why is he such a fan favorite? Why do we love this character? Why does thinking about Gao bring tears to your eyes? Yes, some of it's what happens in the story and his father rejecting him and the sad scene when they put him in the tux. But what accompanies each one of those moments? This gorgeous piece of cello music that you could think was for the most sophisticated of characters. Uematsu is musically telling us something about wisdom and what we value and how we think about people who maybe don't have all the societal customs down, but that's not who Uematsu sees when he looks at a sketch of this green-haired kid wearing animal skins. I agree with all of those very good and smart things you just said. Uh, the only thing I might add here is is the word juxtaposition. Right? You might expect a character like this to have uh, a theme more like the Velt, but but he gets this theme instead. And I think it's meant to show beyond the exterior, just like with Terra, right? You know, you see this monster of light and claws and teeth. But we know who she is on the inside, the orphan kids. They can see that this Esper monster really is Terra. Well, with Gao, Nobuo Uematsu sees this gentle, kind, cello-filled soul. And, and so that's why, that's why this theme so strongly exemplifies the character, right? Like he meets these guys who are trying to do a thing and they've lost... Uh, you know, they've lost so much and, you know, he doesn't have anybody. And so they take him in, but also he takes them in, right? His kindness is, uh, you're my friends now and I'm going to help you. I ooh, ooh, everyone. <laughs> so the next character theme on the list is Celeste's theme. And despite the fact that it's exceptionally gorgeous and probably, again, one of Uematsu's more famous melodies, one that's been reinterpreted and, and redone over and over and over again. Uh, it is the melody of the opera, which we dedicated an entire episode to, and I've mentioned before, but it, it's just really interesting that this is her main theme. The the general, the Magitek general of the Empire gets this very light. Now we get into the weird one. Uh, let's begin with one I purposefully skipped in our conversation of Final Fantasy V because it does exist in that game first, so that's worth mentioning. But it's also kind of been just now the Moogle theme in general, but it is in this game Mog's theme. And it is this fascinating collection of big 
deep sounds and light fluffy sounds, which is just the perfect uh, way to sell this character. Yeah, I like that it's it's almost comedic in its nature. Like here's the cute uh, teddy bear characters and. And, and look at him. He's holding a giant spear and, and knows the magic of the earth. And yeah, I dig all that. It is, it could almost be said to be incongruous like some of these other pieces. You know, throughout we've got this idea of bad things have happened and bad things are coming and, and this is all very serious. But every once in a while, there's a little lightheartedness and I think that's important. Totally agree. And oddly enough, this has become uh, a bit of a fan favorite. Uh, again, I've, I've heard it at live performances. It's not one of my ultimate favorites, but it always brings a smile to my face. And I love hearing the just random instruments that get to play the fun, quirky melody because it is quirky. So you might hear it on an oboe or a bassoon or you know, just on the xylophone. It, it, and it's just cute. Can I use that word? I think, I think I'm using that word. I think probably. cute works here, yeah. Yeah. Not so cute, but also kind of adorable. Certainly abominable oh, is geez. Umaro's theme, which is, again, just basically a collection of... It's just a tuba and a flute. Uh-huh. And this... The classic combination. Modding, yeah, like you do. Um, a great little theme here that has to do all of the characterization for... Umaro. Right, yeah, because there's there's not a lot going on there. It's nice to have the sort of comedy relief tunes be able to slide in and out every once in a while. Yeah, I, I would say if I had to, you know, pick one of the lower, someone says, "Hey, man, critique something." Like, what I would say, okay, Umaro's theme is not the most interesting piece of music on it, but it's not one I skip. Like, if I'm going through the soundtrack, it comes on. It's nice enough and pleasant to listen to. It's relatively short. Too, you know, you just right. doesn't overstay just sort its, of does its thing. And yeah, it gets out of the there's way. There's a there's a skill to that also to know when. You ever seen one of those yeah. SNL movies? <laughs> like it was a good bit. <laughs> we didn't need two hours. <laughs> right, 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 right. Except Blues Brothers. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, there's always exceptions to the rule. And speaking of exceptions to the rule. How in the world Uematsu managed to craft such an interesting, unique piece for a character that you don't have to get, plays no role in the story, has two lines of dialogue, but Gogo gets this just kick-ass theme that I will to this day sometimes just seek out and listen to because... I love the way it slides around and the way it exists, again, as a kind of cultural <laughs> appropriation, if you will, but of a bunch of different cultures throughout the world. They throw together. It's a very Final Fantasy thing to do. Yeah, it does feel like it's coming from a lot of different places and, and doing a lot of different things. It's, yeah, it's just really cool. I dig it. I don't, I don't know what else to say about it other than that it is eclectic, just like its character. Super funky, and like he could have made a pretty boring piece for this character, but did not.
All right, let's return to an idea I introduced last episode, and that is underrated. Some of Uematsu's most underrated pieces of music. I have always liked this next character's theme, but again, it wasn't until I really was listening super closely for conversation on this podcast that I recognized that Strago's theme is one of the more interesting pieces of Super Nintendo or earlier music that Uematsu ever made. Huh. Interesting. I would not have said that. Why do you say that? First of all, the way he structures the percussion in this is just fascinating to me. There's nothing traditional about it, but it's very important to the piece. He's basically got a wood block, a triangle, a hi-hat, and a bass thump. And he puts them in this really strange order to create a, a, a rhythm that just puts you into another space. It, it's it, it's difficult to explain, uh, as a lot of really great music is, but the melody over the top of it is fun and cool and interesting and, and proper for the character and magic and mystery and all of that stuff. But when I really hone in on the rhythms and percussion of it, I'm... I'm just, it brings this huge smile to my face. It's so clever. I don't think very many people would even think uh, to put a piece of music together this way. Not that it's, again, overly complicated or challenging in its conception. It's just unusual. It's, it's got this groovy, weird, like, reggae organ underneath it, too. It's just coming from so many directions, again, like Go-Go's theme, but I feel like with a little bit more purpose, because the character has a little bit more purpose. And I think this could also be reinterpreted more than it has been. That's why I put it in the underrated category. You don't see a lot of remixes or rearrangements of this theme. And it's just clever and interesting and yeah there's there's not much else like it i wonder because uh, the first time you started talking about it uh just now my brain immediately went to the quirky old man music that you hear when you're uh around gao's father and a couple other times i think and and this is kind of a quirky old man music but but it's different in a way i don't know do you think these two pieces are related Absolutely. In fact, I was going to mention that. Uh, I was going to do that piece a little bit later, but let's hear it now for a minute. And I'll just play it in the background as we're talking because it's the closest I can think of to filler on the soundtrack. In fact, this is probably filler music, the quirky. But like yeah. you mentioned, though, why did I not just leave it off the list like I did with the Victory Fanfare or whatever? Because it sticks out. You remember it if you played this game. It's funky and weird. And it's got that little sound sample of... I don't even know what, like a weird person going... Warp, warp, it's, it's almost like a bike horn. Yeah. And then there, there's the wood block, and I think that's what's drawing these two pieces together in your mind, and it's what connects them to me. The, the wood block is a primary piece, and the triangle of the rhythms. So yeah, he, that was kind of how he was creating quirky old man stuff, but then he has a one much more serious interpretation of it. Again, there's a sort of yin-yang nature to these two pieces. 
And the final main character piece is one we've discussed before and may even do again just because it's, again, a personal favorite of both of ours. It's so beautiful. We're, we're drawn to these. We talked about it being a cousin to Rydia's theme, and it is Strago's granddaughter, Realm. such a pretty piece mm. so I mentioned earlier you know the decision making process to me the most interesting decision that Uematsu made here was to put a part of the melody on bagpipes in this case a sample of bagpipes where a lot of the rest of the music in this game and even for this character and the rest of this theme doesn't sound particularly Celtic, but almost out of nowhere, this loud bagpipe just blares out from atop the mountains and kind of smacks you in the face. It's refreshing and doesn't sound like anything else in this world. She doesn't look like anyone else in this world. And other than, you know, we, we talked about it sharing some lineage with Rydia's theme and some of the other lighter, more beautiful character themes. I, I think what sets it apart for me is those bagpipes. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I love this piece. Um, I, I like how it, it feels like a cousin to Rydia or maybe even Palamon Porum's themes from Final Fantasy IV. And maybe that's because it does have that Celtic influence that Final Fantasy IV had so strongly throughout it. It just is, I don't know, we talked about Final Fantasy IV being very ethereal and watercolor, and that's how I feel about Rydia as well, her being our hippie artist character, uh, our hero whose wizard staff is a paintbrush, I think that's especially fitting. Yeah, in a world of dark and gritty characters who have these themes that also need to have reinterpretations because somebody died, uh, right. <laughs> it's nice to have this piece that's just pleasant. Well, and she's so much younger, so her experience has not yet been darkened up by those things that are going to happen in life. Uh, so it, it is it is nice to remember that sometimes, yeah, it can just be it can just be nice for a minute. So you might think that, you know, okay, that's all the character themes. You're, you're done now. But again, I've got a few other loose interpretations here. We'll see what you think of these. But I wanted to talk about another piece that is just used throughout the game that I'm calling the character theme for the Espers. Uh, if I got the Returners as a group. Now, I could very easily have put this, and probably should have, into the events and places, because it's the Esper World sure. music, but it doesn't just play... I mean, that's even what it's called, either Esper World or Another World of Beasts. Yeah. 
but it's also the character theme for Tritoch at the beginning. I think it's the theme that connects Terra to the Esper world that plays when Ramu is telling you the story. And so for me, eh, whether it's a character theme or not, this is one of the best pieces of music that's used throughout the game to tie certain events together. I do think we are stretching a bit to call it a character theme, uh, but that's okay. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a beautiful piece. I've mentioned it throughout the episodes of Final Fantasy VI, how much I like this piece and how mood-setting it is. It does the job well of, of putting us in mind of something mysterious and different and otherworldly, which the espers are. Yeah, and, you know, part of it was just I wanted the number of tracks to be close to even. But another part of it may have been um, my listening to, and you can find this on YouTube, it's called Final Fantasy VI, Born with the Gift of Magic, which is, uh, of course, a line from Terra's character description. And it's by an arranger named Roger Wanamo, who took many of the main themes of Final Fantasy VI and put them together in a 19-minute piece of brilliant, can I say, orgasmic pleasure? <laughs> should, I, should I tune it down? I that's don't know up to the, you, man. Uh, <laughs> but in that, two of the pieces, he keeps coming back to, to weave everything together, are, of course, Terra's theme and the Esper world. And when he plays the two of them on top of each other, I feel like that really sells this connection that the two have and so every time I hear this piece I also think of Terra and her connection to the world and Maduin and Ramu and Tritach and Madeline or Madonna depending on your interpretation and yeah it's just got that sort of screaming over the top line uh, it almost sounds like it could be a siren for the end of the world too um God, this is a good piece of music. Then, in the same vein of The Returners, I decided that the Empire is kind of a character in and of itself. And I actually think there might be a better argument to be made here that troops march on and the Gestalt Empire, which are, like our character themes, reinterpretations of each other, you know, maybe it's the main character theme even for Emperor Gestal, sure. even though it's not called Gestal's theme. Well, either way, Darth Vader's theme is called yeah. the Imperial March, so sure. That, that's a good point. And Troops March On uh, lives in that vein. It's, in fact, you could play this piece, you could swap them. You could have the Imperial March in Final Fantasy VI, sure. and you could put Troops March On into every scene where the Imperial March plays in Star Wars. And, and this would be probably as famous as that piece is. It's, it's just such a good melody, and it's so foreboding, and it's so intense. So, yeah, it's just got the, you know, the fanfare trumpets and the military march and, you know, that kind of bravado. It's really interesting to me when it gets into the B section, the strings 
sound more sort of Russian fascism to me, where the trumpet is more European-style fascism, but it's just like the Imperial March. It's fascism embodied in a piece of music. And then what I really like about what he does here is the the sadder version, which is called the Gestalt Empire, the slower version. To me, it's like the troops march on is the before the battle. The troops march into a city and they seize it. The Gestalt Empire piece of music is typically what plays after the battle, mm -hmm. after something terrible has happened. It, it's the aftermath. And it's this dark and scary and... Um, really horrifying interpretation of it that isn't a march anymore. It's a plod. And of course, no Uematsu soundtrack would be complete without a character theme for the main villain. And this may well be his best. It's certainly really darn good. It's intimidating. Well, I mean, just like the character, right? Initially, Kefka's not that intimidating, but he certainly grows to be so, and so does this piece. Right, it starts comically. It's almost circus music. In fact, it reminds me a lot of the dancing Calcabrenna oh, yeah. from Final Fantasy IV. It's sort of that circusy, creepy, but maybe funny if you interpret it in a certain way. It just gets darker and darker and a little bit more structured, which suggests, you know, we've talked about all the Joker crossovers and the scene in The Dark Knight when Heath Ledger's version of the character says, do I look like a guy with a plan? <laughs> but he really has been planning things. Yeah. And so you're almost more freaked out by the fact that there is some method to the madness. I think this music sells all of that. There's even a part near the end where it loops where for just a minute it stops becoming haunting and it's almost hopeful in a way. Almost like, is this just a regular person? And then the little flute melody falls off the table with na 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 and it goes right back into kind of circus madness. I think basically this piece of music is a mashup of the dancing Calcabrenna and the Imperial March. Yeah, And nice. Th there's also something that the melody does uh, that I really like where it does a little drop off there's a concluding phrase that goes do 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 but instead of it concluding it picks back up with the introductory phrases mm -hmm. that went into it 
it's sort of a musical version of was it Columbo who used to do the thing? <laughs> where... Just just one more thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, it's like that, but a far more sinister version, like an insane person. And that's what's so disconcerting about Kafka's brand of madness. It's that character who could fly off the handle and kill someone in the room at any minute, and you won't know why. You won't have any real notion of what set him off. And so his version of, oh, wait, I've got one more thing to say, could be anything. Yeah. It, it picks up in the middle of a phrase too. It's disturbingly concocted. Brilliant, because it's also epic. It goes from being small and creepy to being epic and haunting. Not unlike the character uh, himself. Yeah, just perfectly, perfectly executed piece of music for the character. And then... After all of this, after all of the events and places that we talked about in the previous episode, and this wonderful collection of character themes, Uematsu just lets it all go. He swings for the fences. He gives you something that you didn't know you needed. A conclusion that could not be more satisfying. Uh, the piece is called balance is restored and it is in total a 21 minute long piece that finishes out the story of Final Fantasy 6 and I assume it was the longest piece he had composed to that point and the first half of it is him just putting all of the character themes back to back to back we played it as we went through that part of the plot for each one of them because you almost have to. This piece of music is as important to the conclusion of the story as any of the words of dialogue, as any of the things that the characters do. This piece of music wraps up the story of Final Fantasy VI by giving us one last reinterpretation of each of these themes. And I mean, I don't, I don't know how we did it to, to have them all go together. There's a ton of clever key changes throughout. Just an amazing piece of music. We have talked before about you know, what is the virtue of this kind of storytelling, whatever storytelling we're talking about. What is the virtue of telling a time travel story? What can you do with that that you can't do with something else? You know, what is the virtue of telling a steampunk story? What's the virtue of telling Rebels versus Empire? I think it is interesting to think about what is the virtue of telling a story through a video game because you don't have to right you know Mario doesn't really tell a story there's there are the things that happen but there's there's not a lot of narrative there there's very little thematic thrust I think one of the virtues of telling a story like Final Fantasy 6 in the medium of a video game is that you can create pieces of art that would exist nowhere else there is no reason for this ending theme to exist without everything that came before. In fact, everything has to come before, before this piece even makes any lick of sense. I think it's beautiful on its right. own. I think it's amazing on its own. I think if you, if you played this for somebody who had no idea 
of Final Fantasy VI, Final Fantasy, even video games, I think they could still listen to it and say there's something really interesting going on here. However, I think it works best when you have everything that came before. So sometimes one of the virtues of telling a specfic story, one of the virtues of going through creating a piece of art with particular sets of constraints or in the context of a certain set of tropes is that sometimes you, you, you find within it, beginning, middle, or end, something you would never have found if you did not do that. So while I, I really enjoy the first couple of character themes that we hear and are you know, reintroduced to here, I want to focus in around just after the six-minute mark, when I think we get our first moment here of not just, hey, a satisfying way of putting these themes back-to-back, but when we get into Celeste's theme, we get a few bar of her opera-inspired melody. And then, as the two character stories cross over, I can't even, I can't talk about it, I can't listen to it without getting shivers. When they do it live now at Distant Worlds, they did it in the opera piece we played. Uh, from the Swedish Symphony Radio. When Locke's theme comes in right over the top of hers and those two themes that we've heard so much throughout the game suddenly fit perfectly on top of one another, the two, uh, the two characters don't kiss at the end of the game or in any way, you know, uh, consummate their relationship. It's done through this moment. This piece of music does it. Yeah beautiful (laughs) coming out of that the harp that is sort of our connecting melodic line the unique thing that's bringing all of these pieces together goes into this arpeggio and this next section gets me all choked up because it's so it resolves and in music we talk about dissonance and resolution this isn't a dissonant note before one that is more harmonious She's had dissonance throughout this entire game. We talked about metamorphosis and protect the espers. And the way it goes into Terra's theme, it comes in with the B section. It doesn't come in with ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. It comes in with the longer notes that are now no longer a march toward an inevitable battle that she has to fight. It's a recognition that the fight is over. He gives us a little bit of that B section and just two final times of the collection of notes that create that perfect melody but in keys we haven't heard before and in a concluding fashion to resolve her entire story and all of the pieces of music that had come before it just like you said this little bit of Tara's theme is nowhere near as powerful if you haven't heard all of the other leitmotifs 
of it that came before. Then the final little bit that I want to mention here, and really we could spend a lot more time on this piece and go over each different character's reinterpretation, but right after that, it gives us Realm's theme minus the bagpipes, just on the flutes, but with that arpeggiating harp in a major key, really beautiful, sums up her theme just nicely, but what's just brilliant is that in concluding Realm's theme, Uematsu then keeps that exact same arpeggio but changes it to a minor chord and plays Shadow's theme, not on a flute with space, but on full strings. He is a superhero now. Shadow's final, and he only plays it for us once. That's all we get of Shadow's theme with the full strings. And it just, it I always brings tears to my eyes when we get to this version of Shadow's theme. It's the full John Williams. He might as well be Luke Skywalker looking out at the dual moons. You know, it's... Uh, have I mentioned that Uematsu's really good? He is, he is. And before uh, before anybody wants to correct us, it's it's the two sons of Tatooine, not the two moons. <laughs> two, two moons is Final Fantasy IV. Two, that's, yeah, that's I'm a Final why Fantasy guy. I yeah, do two moons. That, that's why we did that. Yeah, I, I agree. The way the, the pieces are combined throughout, but especially Locke and Celeste and Realm and Shadow is, you know, we talk about these these musical pieces underscoring who the characters are well that their ties to each other their found family is is one of the main thematic thrusts yeah absolutely and you know again another element of that is the way as i talked about before we sort of go out here on setzer's theme which takes us out through the end of the game for the most part there are a few other things he does throw one more little terra melody at us he just couldn't help himself he's like look it's so good um, <laughs> as it turns into the credits so I'll, I'll sort of let that play out behind us as we discuss the big question is this Uematsu's best work and beyond that what else would I need to say or do to be able to convince people that this is the greatest soundtrack of all time sure sure yeah you and everybody else who has in any way consistently listened to this podcast knows that I'm not really about differences in degree. I'm more about differences in kind, right? I don't... Is it his best work? Maybe. I don't know. It certainly is incredible work, though. I'm not sure how I would measure best, but this... The the whole thing is incredible. It, like, I keep saying, you know, the, the piece does the job. It, it does the job of of making you feel the way the story uh, wants you to feel. The, it does the job of making the characters feel the way the characters are. It, it combines to, to create a world populated with characters I care about and, and things that happen that I wish hadn't happened but that I, couldn't, I, I can somehow make better or, or make right or, or find some justice for. It really is one of the things I am willing to w- listen to front to back, even with the quirky old man music. Or, or the stuff you, I don't think about as much, like you talked about the Serpent's Trench piece is good, or even the, the background stuff, the filler stuff, the hurry-up stuff. All of that feels cohesive to me. So sometimes I might skip a track, but in general, uh, I don't. And, and there, are, there are tracks I skip 
from from various Miyazaki film scores. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say uh, Hisashi, uh, as he's the one who composed those pieces. Uh, there are James Horner, uh, Hans Zimmer, John Williams, all these people. There are, sometimes I'll be listening to a movie soundtrack and I'm like, yeah, not this one today. But with Final Fantasy VI, it's almost never not this one today. Yeah, and you know, I tried to come up with some critiques in the Chrono Trigger episode. I talked about it being one of the greatest soundtracks, but I was able to come up with a few critiques of the battle music and also that I didn't think it had any standout, exceptional, epic pieces, um, which you can, which is debatable, to be sure. But you can't make any of those arguments here. It's got Dancing Mad and, oh yeah, remember, we did the opera a while ago. We left out the opera for the purposes of this soundtrack conversation so include that when you're thinking about the greatest of all time but i i came up with one of of course you did and and really i think there could be a strong argument to be made here but the only thing that holds this soundtrack back is its original sound version the chiptune technology the midis some of them have not aged as well as others i think you could even make the argument that maybe half of the songs we've talked about are better in not their original version because they've now been played on full symphonies and, and using real instruments. Some of them you don't need that for. And I, I brought up some of the ones I thought that was true of. But for someone who's not used to chip tunes and MIDI sounds, it's the one thing that does hold this soundtrack back. And another way to put that is listenability so let me bring up another soundtrack from the franchise i would i think argue that final fantasy 8 especially in its original version has a more listenable soundtrack especially for the average listener it doesn't require you to know as much about the game either now we were both talking about that as an advantage for final fantasy 6 but i do think 6 is one of the soundtracks that works less well if you're not familiar with the world and the story and the characters whereas I don't think you need to know anything about Final Fantasy 8 to be blown away by Liberate Fatale for example or anything about Final Fantasy 7 to be blown away by One Winged Angel any person could sit down listen to those pieces of music damn uh, where this I, I feel like requires more context but as I began an episode ago if the point of a soundtrack is to be a supportive material for the story, is to sell parts of the themes and the characters. And that, I don't know that there's any soundtrack I've ever seen that does a better job of it than this one. Somebody once said to me, you could put on any piece of music from Final Fantasy VI and I'd know where you were in the story or who it was about. And I would have an immediate visceral reaction to it. That's of 53 different pieces of music. I mean, damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, I'd like to blow your mind. I, I love it when you do that. I do believe this is Uematsu's greatest work, if forced to pick one. And I do believe that it is the greatest soundtrack of all time, again, if forced to pick one. Uematsu has at this point established himself as the greatest composer in video games, where I feel like before this, it was maybe a toss-up between him and Koji Kondo, and Kondo might have even had the edge. 
So despite, if, if you want to like compare it to sports, this is like Uematsu's greatest individual season. He won the championship, he won MVP, and he would never put up numbers like this again. However, his greatest individual accomplishments and the greatest overall body of work is yet to come. I think that the next four soundtracks we're going to talk about, 7, 8, 9, and 10, there's more good music in there than we've already discussed combined in 1 through 6. How, how is it possible this man is this good? That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. While the podcast is free to listen to on archive.org or on Patreon, you can download it to your regular podcast services for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we wrap up our conversation on Final Fantasy VI.